0: It does then again beg the question what is our responsibility in schools to help kids understand what it is that their phones are doing without really their knowledge so that's one of those interesting questions that comes up when you're looking at a whole bunch of data that you don't fully understand but that you know is important and takes you in all sorts of tangential directions in a conversation around change so Welcome to the Modern Learner's Podcast again. I'm Will Richardson, one of your hosts, and this week Bruce Dixon, my friend in Australia, and I talk about the Internet Trends Report 2017 version. We touched on this a little bit last week in our podcast, if you happen to listen to that, but this is the report put out by Kleiner Perkins, specifically by Mary Meeker, um, on an annual basis that both Bruce and I think is just important reading for every educator to just get some contextual understanding of the world and to help create a more modern lens for the work that we do in schools. So um, don't worry, we didn't go through all 355 slides, but we did spend some time on some of the bigger aspects of this report in terms of how they relate to education, mobile devices, and a lot on gaming, and just some bigger changes that are affecting the way that we think and the way that we need to um to look at the work that we do. So welcome back if you've listened to our podcast before and welcome to, for the first time if you're new to our podcast. Please go to iTunes and give us a great rating, tell your friends, tell your leaders, and you can head on over to our blog at modernlearners.com, click on this post, leave us a speakpipe voicemail and uh leave us a question or a comment. We'd love to include that into our next podcast coming out next week. But for now, Please sit back and enjoy podcast episode number fifteen of the Modern Learners podcast. We're glad you're here.
1: Hey, Will, how you doing?
0: Well, hey, Bruce, I'm uh, I'm really tired, to be I'm honest. Really tired. Why well, would that be?
1: <laughs> I I know that uh, you've been doing a lot of traveling lately. What was the last well, travels?
0: Yeah, I had one of those nights last night. Didn't get home until three thirty, and you know it was one of those lovely reminders of how much I love travel. And flying on airplanes, usually it works. But last night was a little bit, a little bit difficult. But anyway, how are you?
1: Yeah, very good, mate. I'd have to say a little bit the opposite. Um, as you know, I've uh, with all the work that we're doing with Change School, uh, I've stepped back from a lot of the travel I was doing. And the sad part about being Australian, working the globe, is that you work the globe, and uh, we're a long way from anywhere other than the Antarctic. And um, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> There's That's not a true. lot of there's not a lot of work uh, around uh, change school and modern learners down in the Antarctic. The you know, last time I looked, <laughs> uh, so, um, so uh, yeah. Needless to say, I might I I just should mention. Well, you know, it has nothing to do with anything we're going to talk about. But um, the closest um, uh, civilized place to the Antarctic is their little old state down the bottom of Australia called Tasmania. That's and this right. very weekend, my daughter and her partner have gone down there. Uh, for what they call Dark Mofo, M-O-F-O. I'm, I'm almost the... hesitant to ask what that is, but what is that? Well, listeners who tuned into this podcast will be thrilled to know it has you know, absolutely nothing to do with what they expected to hear. Um, but um, there is a gentleman down there who started up a museum of, uh, of modern art and it's uh, extreme. Uh... Uh, I think so I've heard of this, yeah. Already in the top whatever, of you know, people are flying all over the world and all over this country to go down there. And then for the winter period, which you can imagine it's, it's our winter now, it gets very, very chilly. So he came up with this sort of wacko idea of having a festival, which is sort of around stuff like um, death and, um, and, um, you know, oh yeah. Yeah. He's museum. I think he says it's around sex and death and whatever else, but it, it sounds a Great. bit old. It's a bit off, but it's also amazingly done, and he does a high-quality effort.
0: Are you going to share what MOFO stands for, or does it have a... I I would if
1: I knew. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, I thought thought maybe you knew, but you just couldn't. No, I just can't (laughs) remember, but it's dark Dark MOFO. Look, the highlight, I think it actually starts... um, Remember down here at the moment, the water temperature down there would be about... Three or four degrees, and the air temperature is not much more. And it starts with a nude swim. But that's Celsius, right? Yeah, that's Celsius. Oh, okay. So right. say 30, thirty-eight yeah. degrees tops yeah. okay. the water temperature. Right. And well, that's
0: just making me more. That's just making me more tired, Bruce. I have to tell you. There you, you go. <laughs> even so that's
1: got nothing to do with anything to do with modern learners. No, but you and, know, um, but, while but, that was going, while dark mofo was going on down in uh, Tasmania, our, our good friend or colleague Mary Meeker was releasing releasing her. Uh, very well-respected and well-known uh, internet report. And I think um, I've, I'm, as long as I think she's been doing it, I've tried you know, to make sure I follow it and go and get across it. And I'd have to say that to, to start off the discussion today, and I know we're going to talk about this a little bit more than we did in the last podcast. The unique thing about what she does is um, she probably gives us a, a, an as as an objective, a reference point that we can have. She she spends a lot of time and money pulling together information um, through her uh, company and um, they produce this report and they share it out uh, openly and uh, you can listen to her present it or whatever else if you want to online. And um, it's 300 something slides. So we're uh, we're probably not going to fit that into a little podcast this morning. I know we just want to talk about the highlights, but I think for... Educators for school leaders, um, it is definitely worth uh, having a look at uh, because she sort of points you to trends and ideas and insights about what's going on online. And and today that's a very important space for school leaders to be um, uh, more knowledgeable about
0: yeah and you know, like you said, Bruce, at, at three hundred and fifty five slides that's actually another thing that's making me tired. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I went through uh, i spent I spent a good amount of time just kind of going through it, and you know, like you said it's not about education per se, although I have to say that this report, the two thousand seventeen report, is more about learning and education than I remember. Um, yep. Past reports being about yeah, yep. and um, I, I think it's, uh, it's interesting to just kind of highlight some of of those things and uh, just talk about those you know fairly briefly, like you said, we can 't go through the whole thing, but there's some definite things that continue to happen on the web and with the internet that have implications for us as educators, and I think the first one we should chat just about a little bit about at the beginning is this continuing move to mobile. and the continuing just increase in general of how much time we're spending online, but the the really big now impact that mobile technologies are having. So um, the the latest statistics from 2016, um, adults now in the US spend about 5.6 hours a day engaged with digital media, and over half of that time now is on mobile phones, and it's the only section um, between mobile and desktop and other devices. It's the only one that's growing at this point.
1: And it's, um, it's, it's such a, a challenging and intrusive trend. Um, it, you know, everybody has the conversation about, can you put your phones down? Can you stop looking at your phones? Can you, You everyone in in every life, you know, you go to a restaurant and you sit down at a table and four people draw their phones out sort of thing. It can be, it can it can be very, very intrusive in, a, in the social settings, but it's, um, it's also cause for us to reflect on exactly, you know, what does this mean? Um, both in terms of, you know, our lives, but more importantly, what's it meant in our schools? Because as we said, I think on an earlier podcast, um, the introduction of smartphones for many schools meant they were banned. Um, now, right. most schools um, allow them in some form, but also have um, policy around their use across the school. And so when we talk about having ubiquitous technology access, um, an awful lot of kids have got it because that thing in their pocket uh, provides it. And, and the implications for that statistic, if we, you know, that one thing is, oh yeah, we're using them a lot more. The implications are that the industry, the software industry, the technology industry is going to develop more and more applications um, and much more complex ideas will come via the phone and therefore um, our ability to negotiate and use that within educational context is going to become even more and more important. Is this something that we just, you know, think that we're going to get to the end point on, or is, it, is this something that's going to explode or expand even further than it has so far? You would think there's got to be a, 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 an endpoint. there you would think there's got to be some
0: full capacity number in terms of how much we use it you know what I think is interesting though so this Mary or this Mary Meeker report came out um, what about five about a week ago maybe five yeah. six days ago yeah. and in the last three days just randomly I've read three um, blog posts by pretty well-known um, bloggers who have been online and in the media you know for a long long time All of them said, I quit using social media and I put my phone down for a week just to see what (laughs) would happen, you know? (laughs) I think a lot of people are are bumping up against that number that, you know, 5.6 hours is a lot of time to be spending with technology and, you know, uh, to be honest, I mean, I, I, I think you're probably close to that number. I'm probably over that number, to be honest with you. I mean, I spend a lot of time online, obviously, when I'm not traveling or, or um, when yeah. I'm not you know asleep on planes or whatever. But, I mean, it's a lot of time, and I struggle with this too. And so when, you, when I look at my kids, um, who are almost 100% mobile – only go to a laptop or a desktop, and I spend most of my time on my laptop, obviously, only go to a desktop or a laptop when they have to write a paper or something. You know, I I wonder what the implications of this are going to be. And I wonder the role that schools are going to have to take on in terms of helping kids achieve balance and, and helping them maintain some semblance of health, given the amount of time um that they're online are using those devices and that says nothing about then the appropriateness and the kind of um you know the the norms that we have to help kids develop around how to be a functioning person in society uh respectful responsible all that type of stuff
1: yeah because that's that's the other part of it isn't it because so much of sadly so much of um the discussion particularly within schools is around that it's around appropriate use and um particularly in regard to very young kids. I mean, we, what we haven't highlighted here is, you know, this, this becomes a, a, an even tougher conversation when you start talking about the engagement that very young kids have, and we're talking about, you know, three- and four-year-old kids. And, and, and I think that's a separate discussion which is related, but it's, it's one that certainly I think there is more um, concern about Amongst parents than, than anything I've ever seen in regards to technology with kids, and rightly so. I think there's yeah. a, there are big issues there, but 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 that's that side of it. We can we you know we can address in some ways, as you said. There are there's a lot of ways in which we can talk about appropriate use and deal with the the bad side of it all. But but we're not talking about that per se. We're we're saying, what if you just for a second assume that all this use was actually appropriate use, that in fact It was just kids talking to other kids, connecting, finding out information, sharing ideas, you know, when's enough enough, you know, when do you draw the line and how do you do that?
0: Right. Right. And, you know, so just a couple of quick comments. (laughs) And so yesterday I was at a conference and we were talking about mobile technology and talking about how much kids are using it and the school response, you know, as I said, kind of, you know, setting norms around it that are then applicable to real life because most of the norms that, people are setting in schools are, you don't use them in class. That's the norm, <laughs> you know, you put them away. Yep. And, and one teacher said to me yesterday when we had this discussion about the appropriate use of mobile, she said, well, most of the teachers in my school call them the cheating machine ah. because, because what kids are doing is they're taking pictures and they're, you know, they're uh, sharing on Snap, they're taking pictures of tests or assignments or whatever else. And it's, look, it's, it's, a, it's a huge frustration. I get it because it does disrupt so much of what we traditionally do in the classroom. But I, again, you know, I, I question whether the response was to then eliminate or prohibit or to start asking better questions <laughs> that what kids can't take. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't get into it very far. <laughs> it was not something that I, don't, I, well, we didn't have a lot of time, first of all, but it, I don't think it was something that um, people wanted. That, that was a little bit too much of a push at that point you know Um, because that really does require a rethink of just about everything that we do you know if, if, if we're gonna if we're really gonna say that we're gonna create questions and experiences in classrooms that can't be googled or shared by a picture in the context of cheating um that's a big that's
1: a big ask these days right yeah, and and you know that I, I don't. I think you and I've had a number of conversations when we start talking about the quality of questions that that you know we see in classrooms, and and too many of them, as we know, are are, are quite low level. They're you know about retention of information and the recall of it, and um, and that's you know a habit that's that's legacy practice. That's right. I think that we've also talked about the need for much higher order questioning and discussion and provocation that goes beyond just the knowledge that the teacher brings. And, and we talked about that also in regards to things like open book exams, which become, you know, computer access exams. So, you know, in, in both North America and in Australia and other countries, you know, we've got Um, the thrill of my life that, you know, the big move to -to one-to-one came because we had to have online testing. Right. But but in that, you know, then you ask the obvious question is, well, we're going to give the kids access to the internet. And the answer always is straight out. No. And so um, you, you've got to have, you know, a bigger conversation that now is becoming, you know, front and center with phones because um, this access is there. And if, you know, the answers to the questions that are being asked in the classroom can be um, got by simply pushing a button on a the phone. Then, what's the point of having the discussion? And I think that, you know, this is quite a controversial discussion because people um, can get quite offended by the notion that, um, you know, kids can just sit there and get answers off phones or go to Google on a computer in an exam. But it does bring to the point about what other questions we're asking our kids and what is the point of continuing to ask them questions to which they can very easily get answers. And, you know, the
0: other piece of this too, from a, from a mobile technology standpoint, from a phone standpoint, is um, how much now we're being tracked and how much uh, data yeah. is being collected and how anticipatory... It's a great word for me to use, as tired as I am <laughs> anticipatory. The algorithms are now um, in terms of uh, suggesting things to us when we're in certain
1: uh, but, but, you know, well, spaces. But, Will, wouldn't you be happy with that? if I, uh, You're supposed to be really happy that myself or Mr. Google Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, what I, you want. It's,
0: it is interesting, and I haven't seen it too blatantly, but I, I use a, a GPS app called Waze, and yep. um, it's, yep. it's, in, it's interesting, every time you stop, every time the car stops, a little ad pops up on, on Waze, oh. and, it, and it's just, you can press it, and it says six minutes, six minutes to get to this place, right? So it's not, a, it's not just like this, this you know, ad for Starbucks or McDonald's. It's for, hey, there's a McDonald's literally half a mile from you, Click here, and it'll take. I'll Captain take you. I know, but but then there's that's that's still fairly um, overt. Yeah. But then there's all this covert stuff that yeah. our phones are doing while they're in our back pockets, and it, you know, again, that's a an hours long, days long conversation of which I don't know nearly probably as much as I should, but it does then again beg the question what is our responsibility in schools to help kids understand what it is that their phones are doing without really their knowledge, at least yeah. to give them, you know, a, a, a context for the use of, of the technologies that they have um, that they carry on with them. So anyway, the whole mobile phone thing is, is uh, uh, just going to continue to be a huge, huge, um, kind of have a huge impact on all of our lives, and it's something that I think has to become a uh, a big part of the conversation in schools, um, especially in, in kind of preparing kids uh, for what that looks like. Um, you know, just kind of going down through uh, um, this report, a few other things that I thought were really interesting. Um, Google Lens. Have you heard of Google Lens? Yeah. So this is that app now where you can point your camera on your phone to a storefront, and um, it's this kind of VR um, virtual reality thing where the all of a sudden all the information about that store will pop up on your phone. What, hours, you know, um, what they sell, what their specials are, coupons, the whole deal. And the other piece of it is then um, that it's not just visual, it's not just a camera, but it's also voice, which is getting really, really impressive. And um, according to, again, this internet trends report, we are now at the point where um, there is a, a, I think, let's see what she calls it. She calls it a uh, threshold for human accuracy. We are at the threshold for human accuracy and voice recognition now. So. Um, there is this interesting trend, it seems, away from text, away from words, away from the written type of thing into visual and into audio. And, and uh, that's another interesting shift that I think schools sooner rather than later are going to have to begin to contend with.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I, I, I it is fascinating that it's, it's all coming probably, you know, one sense much faster than we thought. I mean, I, I do remember... You know, even five or 10 years ago, people are saying, I don't know why we're teaching kids keyboarding skills because they're just going to speak into their phones. And, and at that stage, it wasn't realistic. Um, but the point about voice recognition is it's a bit like driverless cars. As someone said, you know, we're, we're going to have autonomous vehicles, not when they're perfect, just when they're better than people. And, and you know, when voice becomes more convenient than clumsy typing, and clumsy text, uh, people will start using it. It doesn't have to be 100% perfect. It's as you said, it's getting to the point though where it's very, very close. And do you
0: do you use it? Do you use voice recognition? No, not as
1: much. Not as much as. Well, if, it's the um, accent too. I mean, your accent's tough. It's person, a beautiful accent. It's but, crystal clear. Um, <laughs> <I'm
0: universally recognized. laughs> I mean, I find myself <laughs> using it more and more. To be honest, in fact, I find do myself you have wishing. Income? Have you got it? Well, income? I definitely use it. No, I don't have Echo. I don't have any of that. I, I don't have any of the, of the home devices. Well, Echo or Siri or um, um, Google Home. I don't even know what the names of them are, but they're those, those standalone technologies that people are putting in their homes now where you can just say, um, you know, you can just talk to them and ask what the weather is and, and find a recipe and get directions and whatever else. Um, but, I, you know, I do find myself using it more and more when I'm texting now, and I okay. I, really? I do find myself yeah, and I do find myself um, wanting to use it when I'm answering email. It would be so yeah, much easier for me to just to be able just to talk into it. And I know that there are some um, apps out there and some some technologies. There are probably people listening to this podcast going, "Oh, come on, you guys, that stuff's been out there for yeah. years," but I just haven't come across it in in uh, a form that is consist that works consistently. Um, but I can definitely see this. I can definitely see this trend happening um, very quickly where typing and that kind of thing uh, becomes secondary and just talking through things and having it, it recorded and transferred to text is probably primary for a lot of the stuff that we're going to do with the technology.
1: It's So it's interesting. So so the two two interesting observations on that, reflections on that. The first is that What's that mean within the context of schools and the context of classrooms? At one level, it means maybe you know, if if in a classroom you know a child wants to record their teacher, they can record their teacher. They can do it today, and that's what a lot of them are doing. And obviously, that can be recorded in all sorts of ways, not just audio, but they and can also
0: and transcribe very quickly too.
1: And transcribe that's what I'm saying. But the sense at which you're going to have then kids making their own reflections orally, auditorily you know, into their phones isn't going to happen. So a lot of people's views about what what they were doing is what the, we always do, which is saying, how will we just simply replace one medium with another rather than say, how will we use this medium differently to be more effective in what we're doing? And well I, I'm also interested in the second aspect of it, which is I think of my brother and one of my daughters are both lawyers. And lawyers traditionally are the big dictaphone users, you remember Dictaphone's Will? Did you ever <laughs> young enough to, I don't know if we call them that over here, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, and so they you know their lives are spent with this thing in their hand, walking around a room, talking into it, and then having a secretary, of course, you know, or a bank of secretaries, go off and and type it up. Mm-hmm. Now the interesting thing is, yeah, for them it's it's absolutely brilliant. They'll be they'll be fine, but um, composing, you know, work, um, writing material. Um, orally like that, as opposed to sitting down and looking at a keyboard or something, is a very different cognitive process. And um, it might be fine for, you know, dealing with litigation and lawsuits, but I'm not sure that it necessarily works for the creative mind. And I'm sure it is totally dependent on the person involved. For me, I'm unfortunately, or fortunately, much more visual person. And I don't find it as easy to compose work auditory. But when it comes to things like you just said, answering emails for the amount of email both of us have to deal with. Yeah, I can see it's an amazing potential interview. So
0: wouldn't it, wouldn't it be interesting if we had an application and I'm sure again, this is something that's out there that we probably need to need to find, but that would be transcribing this conversation right now for us yeah Uh, and and because right now the way that we have dealt with transcription in the past and again i don't want to spend too much more time on this but the way we is we've sent it to a service that has basically um you know put it through some type i'm assuming of some type of technology and then had a human kind of um go through it and and edit it and tidy it up and things but um, and, and this is definitely for another day. I don't even want to go down this path at all. But wasn't it Seymour Papert, who at some point, I think, thought that text was going to go away? Yeah. Um, yeah. That, you know, we I'm were sure moving. We a little bit. I think it was that we were moving to, and, I, you know, hopefully somebody out there will correct me if I'm wrong, but um, that, you know, it, it, it was, we were moving to a very highly auditory visual um, type of place where um, most of uh, that text interaction wasn't going to be required but let's save that we'll save that definitely for it by the
1: way just to reiterate where you started and that is that it isn't just auditory it isn't just you know voice the, the pictures the use of pictures and images is changing the way we communicate and connect no and, doubt and just as an overlay to that of course it goes without saying video even more so no doubt Okay. And, and and you think about it, I, I just sometimes reflect on the video. I know that Mary Meeker made comment on this, and the, the, the amount of video now that's, and you've only got to look at what's happening in places like Facebook. But this is, this we talk about exponential change. That is, I mean, it's ridiculous. Five years ago, it was unheard of, really. People, if you used a video, you thought you were very special. And here we are in change school. You know, we, we're we doing our little Brady Bunch videos with 20 or 30 or 40 people from around the world all sharing images talking to each other as if they're in the same room at, you know, a minimal or no cost. And so the use of images now both moving and fixed um, are are almost as powerful as what we're doing with voice. It's crazy.
0: Now I want to spend a little bit of time and and maybe the the last piece of our conversation tonight um, on one aspect of the internet trends report. And that was the part about gaming. And I think that you and I may have a little bit of a, or we may have a little bit of a discussion or debate about this, but um, this slide, when I, when I saw it, just kind of made me sit up and take notice where she has a slide. And for those of you that are, are trying to find it online, we'll put the link to the whole deck in the uh, show notes, obviously, but it's on page 80 where she says interactive games equal the mother load of A, tech product innovation and evolution, and B, modern learning. (laughs) And when I saw that, I was like, okay, this this is interesting that that games are really what are driving modern learning. And when you go through some of this research, you're just blown away. There are now 2.6 billion billion gamers in the world versus 100 million um, 20 years ago. Um, they're all ages, but their average age is 35. And basically the, the, the pull in an educational sense for games is that basically, it, she says, it can optimize learning and engagement. And they talk about a whole, she goes through a whole series of things that I think are, are just fascinating in and of themselves. But I'm just gonna read these really fast. So um, in terms of optimizing learning and engagement, there's repetition, there's dynamic difficulty adjustment they call it, solving puzzles, planning workflows, completing projects, leveling up, competing, exploring and discovering, following rules, collaborating, and social connection with leadership, observing, interacting with, analyzing data, self-optimizing, and creative storytelling. All of those things are learning aspects of games that are now um, moving as you are not going to be surprised beyond games, right? Beyond that kind of traditional sense of what we have, you know, World of Warcraft or Minecraft yeah. or, or yeah. that kind of stuff. So um, the 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 aspect of games that is the most powerful is this idea that it they are engaging, and the reason that they are engaging is because they stay in that flow zone zone between challenge and ability. That you're always yep. in that, uh, you know, that zone of proximal development almost, right, that Vygotsky used to yep. talk about, where it's just challenging enough so it's not frustrating. Um, and yet, um, you know, your, your ability level grows so it doesn't get um, uh, boring. Um, and, and it can keep you in that place where you are constantly upskilling and, and learning and engaged in whatever it is you're doing. And how rarely
1: do we say that about, well, classrooms and schools. I think uh, you're, you're stepping into interesting zones there, uh, Will. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I know that we have now a, a large um, listening base uh, for our podcasts, but I I mentioned to you that uh, a colleague of ours um, here in Australia um, listens to our podcasts and, and uh, Esme we've talked about in change school uh, also um, is someone who's just got a PhD based on Vygotsky's work and beyond. So I'm sure she can enlighten us in that space in education. But I think what um, is interesting about this is it's been around for a long time. In all fairness, um, and and this is where my head's always been at, we started this in, for those of you who are old enough to remember, when that little old Apple II rolled out of the garage, it had a thing on it called lemonade stand, you know, and um, and lemonade stand came out of the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium, 1978-79. And as, as a crude one-dimensional uh, simulation of commercial enterprise game slash whatever, it was a phenomenally good example of it. And it, it, it just showed everyone there's potential here. Here we are 39 years later, and we might be getting to that tipping point. And, and, the, and the difference has really been that firstly, um, an awful lot of the commercial enterprises, and I'm, we're probably in the hundreds or more of them, companies that have got a hold of this idea and wanted to make tens of millions of dollars out of an education, just forgot to ask educators to be involved in the design of their games. Right. And so they they were flawed from a pedagogical perspective, had no idea or understanding of how kids learn and, and made all sorts of wrong assumptions about how they should engage them. And at the second level, to do it in the most impactful way is incredibly expensive and takes a long time. But if you've got a hundred billion people running around wanting to play your games, you can afford to do it in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And that's when people, you know, can do that. So, but we're we're at that tipping point where game design at a sophisticated level is now affordable. Um, uh, Use technology use within schools is now prolific enough, ubiquitous enough to justify that investment. So that all those concerns that we might have once had about the inappropriate way in which game designs happen in schools, I think is is, is potentially going to be um, overcome at some level. I still have some concerns and I think about, you know, where a lot of the adaptive learning work's gone and where some of the, you know, I think terrible failures of things like, you know, in bloom and others with their personalisations have really led us down a bad track. But we are going to see... I think, some, some really sophisticated developments and designs which, which potentially really could offer a lot of opportunity for us in schools.
0: You know, the other thing I find amazing about the whole gaming thing is the learning aspect of it in terms of how kids learn games, how people learn games. Let's yeah. This isn't really just a conversation about kids. And full disclosure, I'm not a gamer, and I don't think you are either. I'm not sure, but I don't think I've that... designed that...
1: them, developed them, uh, and I'm not a gamer. Yeah, you're more,
0: you're, you're even more than I am. Um, you know, I, I, I do flight sim, but that's not really a game. But what I find so interesting, and I used to, I used to talk about the site Twitch in uh, my yeah, yeah. presentations, yeah. where people on Twitch just live stream their playing of the game. And, you know, people always go, why would anyone want to watch that? And the obvious answer is to learn how to play the game better.
1: That's right.
0: You know, and it, it's, it's basically mentorship. It's apprenticing yeah. by watching people play the game. So you look at the statistic that's in this report, and we're closing in on 6 billion hours a month of live stream nah, gaming on Twitch. On, on Twitch, just one place. It is. I know. I've but, seen them. It's just absurd. Okay, so let's say, let's, let's say they're off by, you know, a quarter. You're still talking about an enormous amount of, of time that people are engaged in not just playing, but learning about games and how just different that is from the way we think about learning um, in, you know, in, in classroom. And the other piece of it too, and again, we're kind of sailing through this just in the interest of time, but the other piece of it too that they point out is is how much math now is involved in so many of the games, and especially, and this is another interesting piece yeah. of this to me yeah. because I own a kid who's really into sports, but is this move toward esports, um, yeah. and and fantasy sports, and all of that type of stuff, um, the statistics that are that that kids and game players are combing through and studying and working out in order to to figure out who do you draft and you know how much for some of these games that have salary caps and all of that type of stuff um i'm telling you those people are probably learning a lot more math that sticks by playing a game than they are by sitting in a classroom and it's it's now becoming again this disconnect and this gap between math in the real world and math in school yeah, And the cool yeah. thing is now is that math is becoming more concrete in a game playing sense to a lot more kids. Um, but that's not cool for schools because yeah. they come to school and go, why am I doing this? I want to be out there doing my roster. <laughs> I want to be figuring out I need a guard. I need someone who can shoot at a certain percentage and I only have this much money to spend. And so I got to move
1: this stuff around.
0: You know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah, well, and I- it's, it's really interesting.
1: My good friend, Tom Seidenberg, who teaches math up at Exeter, always, and he's a big big sports fan, always said to me, you could, you could you know, teach an awful lot of the math curriculum by just using baseball stats. And yep. when you put them in the hands of kids in the ways that you can do that through gaming now, and you can give them the ability to manipulate, to simulate, to, you know, to be challenged about how they apply that, you just present a whole different context. And it has a lot of meaning for them. Yep. Um, you shift across to something like Minecraft, which again, you know, both these in, in, in the whole area that you're talking about in Minecraft, you know, they don't have a, a, a set finish. They're open ended. The, the kids can develop and build the ideas themselves, which is a right. fundamental component that's been missing in so many of these things. They are going to change, you know, the way we view all this a lot and we have to be much more open-minded about it and, and realise that in some ways, some of the virtue that we saw in, for instance, classic example, chess or Go, which we believed was, you know, sophisticated thinking and acceptable strategy, um, is, can be found in many of these games, even more so. And and so it's going to challenge us within schools um, to start thinking about, well, where does, that, where does that all fit? Because I, the piece that I really haven't liked is the so-called trivialisation um, trivialization. Of, of the learning that can take place when things are gamified in a really superficial way. And I think that's the space that we've got to walk away from. You stole my
0: word because you know that that is it's and it fits into the whole lexicon of how yeah. we deal with technology in schools. We gamify it, we personalize it. We, you know, here we go again, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Game-based learning. You can hear it coming. I mean, I'm sure it's, if I do a Google search right now, I'm sure that's a term that's out there, and it's only going to grow. And it's it's just not understanding what is happening because it's not game-based learning. It's learning. And it's just learning in a context that looks very, very different from, from what we do in schools. And it, I just don't know that we're going to be successful in really helping kids understand the learning opportunities that are in front of them if we're trying to fit gaming into school. <laughs> it's yeah. just, you know what I mean? That's what we try to do with all this stuff. It's well, not basically- that. We have to fit school to the world that gaming exists in and that's a it's a just a much much more difficult obviously a much more difficult equation but i it's not it doesn't work the other way around
1: well i think i mean i know we, we as you said when we started this podcast we could go on this for a long time and we're not going to but but just to touch <laughs> we on keep promising that. people we're not going to go long <laughs> into, we do. Who knows? Yeah. We may be here another couple we hours don't i don't know <laughs> um, but just to also i mean two quick comments one is that There is a lot of work in there that Mary Meeker shares around gaming. And if you think where, you know, this isn't something that educators and educational leaders should be involved in, have a look at that because it's telling you we should be. Absolutely. The second level area just to touch on the same space is AR and VR, augmented reality and virtual reality. And I just want to run a flag up and say, just be really careful when we go to that space, because I think of second life. Is my first one and as is about to come in san antonio you know for us at the moment you know I, I go back to ISTE's about 10 years ago and second life which was a simulation where you know you, you essentially oh boy your world it's, it's going, going to, to change start. the world I mean, it was going to change education it was remember cool because we done we uh, were toast how many breakouts <laughs> were there on second life you
0: know? oh my goodness
1: so, if we, as, as you just said, if we stop trying to fit this into the existing boxes that we have called, you know, where school is, you know, we're never going to get to where we need to go. At the same time, the other night, I'm watching a show which I don't know whether you've had in the States yet. It's out of the BBC called The Invisible Cities of Italy. And listeners, um, if you've got the vaguest interest in some of the Renaissance period in Italy, the augmented, rea- the, the virtual and three dimensional views they had of those cities wasn't augmented. It was virtual and it was three-dimensional views. And the way they used the technology was extraordinary. It gave you insights you could not otherwise have had. And I'm thinking that's the space we've got to go down. Doing stuff we couldn't do before, in Pappitt's words, at a level of complexity that was not previously available to us. And that's the space we are got to be thinking about with gaming with virtual reality, you know, these are the spaces where there is opportunity. And so we're going to be open-minded and we've got to also be real. And these statistics in Mary Meeker's report are real. Believe it or not, video gaming consoles, people spend more time on them
0: than they do on Facebook, on Snapchat or on Instagram. Um, it is the uh, most engaging form of social media. Uh, according to this report, and that should give us all pause and <laughs> reason to think hard about what that means um, for our schools. Um, so, just a couple things, and then we'll close out. I, I do want to, you know, kind of tease out a couple other things because I, I really want people to look at this report. I, I, I just think that oh, it's 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 Indeed. extremely important. It's extremely important, and um, it, just to get a sense of where the world is going. Um, so, just a couple things. Um, they they cite it. Are uh, they? She refers to a site called um, Byjus. I, I think that's what it's called. byjus.com, um, which is this like really interesting um, learning site from India. Um, if you're listening to this, as soon as we're done, go there and take a look at that and try to wrap your brain around the implications of what they're doing there. Um, And and then I just, I I wanted to cite this one statistic because I've kind of used this in the past, and I think that this probably um, applies across lots of different disciplines, but just understand that medical research and knowledge um, is now doubling every three and a half years. In 1980, it took seven years. In 1950, it took 50 years. Um, In five years, 10 years from now, it's probably going to be almost instant, (laughs) instant doubling of medical knowledge and, um, and, and, research. And I think that, that, um, that's just a, an example or an indicator again of how quickly, um, this is, is just blowing up, um, right in front of us. And I, I don't know of too many people who can wrap their brains around it, I don't think either one of us is making a suggestion that we even can wrap our brains around it, um, but it's absolutely something that we have to begin to understand in school and the way we think about learning the way we think about education the way we think about preparing our kids um, we we can't keep doing what we've been doing um, we just can't we have to find ways of of changing it of reimagining it and um I think that if you, if you dig into this deck um, and have some conversations around it, it'll, it'll be a great beginning for uh, perhaps some, some really big thinking around what, what we can do differently in schools.
1: I think that's a, a great comment and a great place for us to, to finish today's podcast. Finally, as we promised we were going to do, um, just to reiterate that, uh, that Indian site was byjus.com. Just have a look at it. I mean, it's, it's got echoes of, of early Khan Academy in it, but just have a think about... Um, on steroids. Yeah, on steroids, <laughs> that's for sure. But, but once again, well, it's been great talking to you. I um, hope everyone uh, who's listening um, is already getting our newsletter. If you're not, just go to modernlearners.com. Um, we mentioned a couple of times, and we usually do, Change School. If you're interested in knowing more about that, it's change.school. Um, you can find out a little bit more about um, what's happening there as well. And so uh, till next time, Will, great talking with you.
0: Cheers, mate. Always good to talk to you. And uh, we'll, we'll pick it up again next week. Hey, thanks for listening. And don't forget to come back next week for another conversation between Bruce and me about high bar change in schools. If you haven't read our latest white paper on the eight attributes of modern educational leaders, you can head over to bit.ly the number eight. A-T-T-P-O-D, and download it. And if you're really getting serious about change in schools and you're a leader who wants to learn how to do that and connect with all sorts of other people from around the world who are doing that, please visit us at change.school, where we're already taking signups for our third cohort uh, that starts in September. So we hope to see you there as well. Have a great week, everyone, and thanks again for listening.